I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Jan Lambourne, one of the team who look after the fruit gardens at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. Each fortnight we bring you a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening. Plant care, pest control, garden design, growing your own fruit and vegetables and expert seasonal advice on what you should be doing in your garden right now. Plus, we bring you behind-the-scenes reports from the stunning RHS flower shows and give you exclusive guides to beautiful gardens to visit. There are four RHS gardens in the UK, Harlow Carr in North Yorkshire, Rosemore in Devon, Wisley in Surrey and Hyde Hall in Essex. As the sun finally appears, bringing both plants and many gardeners out of winter dormancy, now's a perfect time to visit an RHS garden, get some fresh air and some inspiration. In this week's podcast, The Only Way is Essex, plantsman and gardening expert Matthew Biggs brings you an exclusive guide to RHS Garden Hyde Hall near Chelmsford. He'll be joining garden curator Ian Legros to explore the sights and delights of the garden through the seasons. He'll discover the new additions to the gardens, wildlife highlights, as well as plants that will surprise and delight visitors this year. And he'll also meet experts in the garden team to discuss the tips and techniques behind the stunning plants in Hyde Hall's world-famous, ecologically sustainable dry garden. So let's join Matthew Biggs on a tour of the RHS Garden Hyde Hall with curator Ian Legros. I'm Matthew Biggs and I'm here at Hyde Hall on a lovely spring day with the shafts of sunlight piercing through the clouds and spotlighting the clumps of narcissi and lovely lush green foliage. And I'm here with Ian Legros, the curator. For those who have never visited the garden before, just uh, just give me a little bit of background. I'm intrigued by the, the horticulture and the climatic conditions here. Yeah, we're, we're not actually that far from the, the coast, so we can pick up very cold easterly sort of breezes. Uh, quite often you have a bit of salt-laden wind as well. Uh, we're on a very heavy clay. Uh, we're about 46 metres above sea level. And uh, we're in an area that is not very far from the driest place in the UK, perceivably, which is Great Wakering near South End. We get about, on average, about 600 mil two foot of rain per calendar year. And so uh, we go from paddling around in mud uh, to cracking in about a two week period because of the elastic nature of the clay soil. So that's what makes it very hard growing. Mention Hyde Hall, and a lot of people think, oh, yes. The dry garden, that's what it's famous for. But there's much more to the garden than that. 
Yeah, there is. I, I think you know that's been a fairly new concept that came in sort of 2001 and that we've just recently added to. Um, we've also, though, grown some really good roses here. We've got the, the modern rose garden um, with David Austin roses in it. We've also got the rose walk and the shrub rose border. Uh, so roses do grow very well with us and we're, we're, we're well known for pruning them well. You, you talk about the David Austin roses, the new English roses. Just describe what they are. Well, these are uh, a particular sort of uh, rose that's been bred for disease resistance and vigour. And also it's got the old English sort of flower shape and scent. Scent is something that, you know, some people have seen as missing from roses for many years. Well, now it's coming back in. And on a nice sort of June summer's day, it's a wonderful area to walk around. I've got a poor sense of smell and even I can enjoy it. It's, it's a great place to be. What else is likely to catch the eye? We do quite a lot of work with sort of herbaceous borders. And we've also got some very large uh, perennial plantings that sweep down Clover Hill and are sort of uh, almost sort of reflective of the scale of the sky that's above them. You know, big drifts of sort of 30 to 50 salvias and sedum and verbena bonariense. Just describe the salvias, because that must bring some wonderful colour. Oh, yes, yeah, certainly, certainly in sort of May and into June, you get a, a, a sort of lovely, deep uh, sort of mauve uh, flower that's about four or 500 mil high, and there's so many flower spikes it's a lovely solid carpet of colour and these are all gorgeous ornamental sages they are yeah they are we've got quite a good collection of those and we're looking to build on that yet further and what else will they see in that uh, herbaceous collection oh well actually what's nice is uh, later on in the the, the sort of of September months you you have lovely sort of uh, building collection of Nifofia which Work wonderfully, wonderfully well. The red hot pokers, uh, yeah, the red hot pokers, which is a specific one, but yeah, the red hot pokers, different sizes, uh, and sort of like little maid, for instance, which is a little yellow one about 400 mil high, to the colescens, which is uh, sort of four or five feet. But yeah, lovely sort of burnt oranges with the the sort of the the brown and sort of uh, summer dusty age of the landscape beyond. It's a lovely sort of colour transition between the two. And what's on offer in autumn? Well, in autumn, we're looking to sort of build up uh, autumn sort of flowering crocus, uh, which we have small pockets of here and there, and we've been playing around with a little bit of uh, larger planting. Um, but also, I think as a Hyde Hall, uh, you know, you, you sit on this sort of little hilltop, the landscape radiating around has that lovely seasonal change in the autumn, but also the tree planting we've been doing. We have some specimen trees that have become more and more obvious as we've done um, sort of thinning out exercises of the older plantings, so lovely things like Quercus ellipsoidalis, the northern pin oak, and uh, also in the tree belts, you know, you've got lovely uh, sort of prunus and Asa campestri, the field maple, that colour up, and the tree belt plantings do actually colour up very well. So, with with all the um, the prunus, you know, the, the cherries, then that must bring some super colour in spring. Yes, I mean, this, this is sort of uh, the common uh, cherry, Prunus pedus, and that, for instance, that we have out in the tree belts. But yeah, you get, do get the white flowers and that in the spring. But I, I think you probably notice them more in the autumn. The, the burnt oranges are just absolutely striking. It's like having a bonfire, isn't it? Oh, it's those rich superb. bonfire colours. Now, bearing all this in mind, how's the garden been developed? How's it been divided up? The garden really started not far from where we're standing now. And the Robinsons started doing a kitchen garden uncovered a stable floor and then got more and more interested in this and got more and more into gardening and the garden spread through this region and up the east of the garden and then in the 70s really sort of went down what we call the main lawn with the uh, the creation of rose beds and large tree and shrub borders in the middle of it who were the robinsons the robinson he was a uh, dr robinson who was a harley street specialist uh, retired from that in about the 1950s 
and came out here and took over Hyde Hall, which was a working farm. Uh, I think farming was a bit of a uh, bit of a hobby potentially, but he. I don't think he was one of those people to do things by half measures and he became a large farmer in the area and there's sort of images of old combine harvesters and he had six working in one of the fields. Uh, so it sort of shows the sort of scale of the farming and his passion for farming that he sort of ensued. And what about his passion for gardening, the, the space that you inherited? Well, that sort of really came through Mrs Robinson uh, creating the bit of a kitchen garden out the back here. And slowly but surely, I think they got more and more kind of into it and interested in it. Um, It's almost farming on a slightly different scale. And also around about the same time, they started to sort of become aware of the RHS shows that were in London. So started visiting those, got inspiration ideas, planting ideas, and sort of started to kind of get known as a, a couple who were creating a garden in a peculiar location in Essex. And slowly but surely, they got so well known and became avid plant collectors that they then actually got invited onto some of the plant committees of the RHS. I'm Andrew Lodge, um, garden manager of RHS Hyde Hall. Andrew, tell me about Hyde Hall from your perspective. Um, Hyde Hall is very exciting and certainly over the last few years we've done a huge amount of projects. We've got round about 365 acres here and actually 120 is under our care. We've planted a huge amount of trees, round about 75 acres in total and it is quite different from, um, shall we say, our other RHS gardens and that we've got a lot of meadowlands here grassland and we cut for hay and it's just a great place to sort of come and enjoy walks around the garden and out onto the wider estate. Have you tried to create specific habitats? Again there's been quite a bit of planting um, certainly with pines which aren't shall we say a natural thing to plant around here but it's actually attracting the owls now. Uh, And anything else? Again, we have a lot of pheasants in here, we uh, badgers, foxes, and uh, should we say just a real good variety of wildlife. Uh, have you done anything to attract butterflies? Yes, a huge amount of planting, and that is really just within the garden. And there's a lot of, you know, commonal garden plants that will actually attract butterflies. We also have established a perennial meadow over the last 10 years, and again, it is a great haven for wildlife. Through this year we're, we're continuing with a trial of uh, perennials, about 122 perennials that have been sown in strips and uh, we're just sort of seeing what ones want to kind of grow with us and then we will make uh, a selection from that and be sowing sort of big perennial flower meadows uh, out in the sort of estate land which sits between us and our tree belt on the boundaries. Give me an idea of what size. Around about 60 acres in total by the time the scheme is finished. It'll be like painting the landscape. I mean, you, ha- you, you have, I, I can stand here and I can look and the, the, the landscape is just gently undulating. But what I, I, I really notice is the skyscape. So you'll be painting these living paintings over the landscape in perennials. Yes, yes, we will. And can you just explain what perennials are? You're talking about herbaceous perennials. Yes, yes, generally we are. I mean, uh, a perennial is a a sort of plant that will uh, go from sort of seed and uh, sort of flowering in sort of two to three years and will then sort of keep growing and keep flowering. There is an agapanthus in there, which are a little bit slow to flower, so they might take anywhere between sort of three to five years before they sort of start to flower as they build up. And agapanthus are the African lilies. They have a long, uh, thin stem with a a lovely sphere of flowers at the top and, and 
thick strap-like leaves that are also attractive. Yep, absolutely. And uh, we, we've also got, yeah, we've got some sort of herbs like uh, thyme and oregano and that in there, uh, just seeing how they'll fare. We've got uh, penstemons. There's a few types of penstemon. There's oryngiums, the sea hollies, which are also in there. Um, and the, the penstemons are, are short spikes of flowers, almost like a compacted foxglove, but yes. wonderful colours, don't they? They have a whole range yeah. of colours from purples and whites and pinks. Yeah, and uh, a tubular flower, which uh, is a very sort of a, a, attractive, yeah. And that's going to be the interesting thing, seeing what things want to sort of grow in the sand that we've sown them in. We, we've applied three inches of sand over the burnt-off grassland. And we're seeing now what ones have germinated and emerged. That's been through this year. And now we will see which ones have managed to punch it through into the soil and the clay and will continue to grow through this year. So it's going to be very interesting. Ian, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. you know, thank you very much for all your ideas and your tips and for telling us so much about this wonderful garden. Matthew Biggs with curator Ian Legros and garden manager Andrew Lodge at RHS Hyde Hall in Essex. You can find details of Hyde Hall, its seasonal highlights and special events being held there on the RHS website. Here you can also find details of the other three RHS gardens and RHS partner gardens in your local area. The RHS has teamed up with more than 150 outstanding gardens throughout the UK and overseas. These partner gardens offer free entry to RHS members during selected periods. There are gardens located all around the UK, making them an ideal day out for those who live further away from the four main RHS gardens. Suggestions for seasonal highlights at RHS partner gardens and details of their locations are on our website. I'm Jan Lamborn and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. If the spring warmth is spurring you on to tackle jobs in your own garden, what tasks should you be doing now? So my name is Matthew Pottage. I'm a garden manager at RHS Garden Wisley. Okay, so we're in our rose garden. We're seeing early growth on the roses now. Things are starting to wake up. And the best possible tack this time of year is to try and get the roses off to a good, clean, disease-free start. And what we've done here, we've gone over the roses doing the pruning and the final cuts have been made. We've had a milder winter than summer at Wisley and actually some of the roses have retained some of their old foliage so we're actually just going to cut this off while we're doing any pruning so we've got a complete fresh start so we've got no black spot no mildew present we've got a lovely pheasant over there joining us today and and after the final pruning has been done we've cleaned off any leaves we're just going to place a mulch around the base of these roses I'm Ian Ball garden manager at RHS Garden Hyde Hall the spring season's a busy time in the gardens. Everything's really just getting growing very vigorously for the season ahead. And as well as your plants, your weeds are going to start to grow as well through the spring season, particularly if there's a little bit of rain as the temperature increases. And obviously you want to keep control of the weeds through your borders. great thing to do early in the spring season is to mulch your borders, so that's spreading a, a layer of uh, well-rotted uh, compost, green waste compost, bark over your soil surface, uh, a couple of inches thick, that is going to hopefully keep your weeds down and also help to keep uh, the soil nice and moist during the summer months and improve your soil structure and make your, your borders look nice and neat and crisp and tidy uh, for the season ahead. A couple of things that I've got to do when I get back home is to make some early sowings of lettuce in modules. The spring was just so cold that you're almost deterred from doing anything in in the garden. So uh, lettuces in modules, they'll germinate uh, quite quickly, just a uh, I sow successionally as well, so I shall sow some uh, as soon as I get home and then in a couple of weeks' time, and that means that 
they will be at different stages of growth um, and weather permitting they will mature over a longer period of time. Uh, the other thing that I'll be wanting to do as well is to sow uh, mixed leaves. You can buy them from the garden centres as cut and come again. Just sprinkle them over the surface of pots, um, water them in. Once you've covered them with a fine layer of com compost, they will grow really well. I'll keep some in the greenhouse because they will germinate more rapidly and then some will go outside. And something that I always think is a great idea, particularly if you haven't got any space uh, for propagation you don't have a large greenhouse or anything like that it's actually to go and buy your small plants buy your plug plants from the garden center because these days there's such a wonderful range you don't then have to worry about growing things uh, from seed that need a lot of care and attention you can literally go and buy a whole range of vegetables from celery to brassicas even to chicory later on in the year and just plant them straight away it's a super way to start vegetable gardening particularly if you've never done it before because what it does is that it's a sure way to guarantee success there's further practical seasonal advice on our website www.rhs.org.uk where you can also find video guides to key jobs in the garden you're listening to the rhs gardening podcast don't forget you can also follow us on twitter at the underscore rhs and like us on Facebook. One of the interesting things about visiting gardens is looking at their different areas of horticultural specialism. Some gardens contain national collections of specific types of plants and boast incredible seasonal displays. Some showcase types of garden design or specific gardening techniques. These gardens are great places to find inspiration for your own patch. An individual plant, a planting scheme, or a new approach to try at home. One of Hyde Hall's most famous features is the internationally renowned Dry Garden. This area is entirely made up of plants that have a minimal need for water. This makes them ideal for arid conditions, but they're also great for people who are interested in creating more environmentally friendly gardens, or have little time for garden maintenance. Matthew Biggs braved the windy weather to find out more from garden manager Ian Bull. I've walked across from the uh, woodland garden in front of the expanse of the pond and now come to the, the dry garden. Today a windswept quite cold but with that feel that spring is just around the corner. I feel as though I'm in the middle of a desert full of spiky angular plants in this dry garden but, but can you define for me exactly what a dry garden is Ian? Well, Hyde Hall is in uh, Essex and it's in the driest part of the United Kingdom and the dry garden really was inspired by that fact and the dry garden showcases a huge range of plants that people can grow in their gardens at home that don't need watering at all. So particularly during a hot dry summer the plants have to survive on here just by receiving the natural rainfall that they receive. Looking around me I can see you've altered the topography, the landscape. There's lots of uh, hillocks here covered with uh, gravel and large stones to create the ro rock garden effect. Uh, what kind of soil have you used for these plants? The dry garden's on a hot, sunny, south-facing slope. Um, we wanted to create a rocky Mediterranean outcrop. So actually underneath the dry garden there's a lot of, uh, lot of rubble and a lot of hardcore uh, to improve the drainage and create these sort of rolling, undulating mounds. But the dry garden is actually uh, constructed and built using our own soil at Hyde Hall. And Hyde Hall is on a 
Essex clay, which can be quite a wet, sticky soil in the winter and uh, obviously quite a hard, dry soil during the summer months. So we mixed in huge amounts of grit and sand to our clay soil uh, to ensure that it stays relatively free-draining during the winter months. You've, you've chosen plants from dry areas of the world. You talk about Mediterranean conditions, but that's not just the Mediterranean, is it? There are other parts of the world. So give me some examples of plants that are from a Mediterranean climate but come from another part of the world. There's a huge range of plants on the dry garden, um, all coming from the sort of Mediterranean climates, and that encompasses lots of different parts of the world, such as South Africa, California, parts of Australia. Uh, so for a shrub, for example, a calistemon, a bottle brush coming from Australia, a couple of different species that we grow on the, uh, on the dry garden, the typical red flower, but also quite the unusual sort of a lemon uh, flower as well, one called pallidus, which catches the eye during the summer months. And they have these uh, lovely dark green, sharp, narrow, sharp-pointed foliage. But but like they, their name suggests, they are just like wattle brushes. They're beautiful, aren't they? They're a fantastic evergreen shrub. People tend to think they're actually quite tender, but they're really relatively hardy. Uh, we're on a sort of southwest-facing slope here on the dry garden, so it is uh, quite exposed, receives quite a strong wind. Uh, but the calisthenics survive that, they survive our winters, uh, and they do flourish on here. If, if you're coming here to look for inspiration, and it's certainly a great place to come, which, which shrubs would you say were outstanding? There's many outstanding shrubs on the dry garden, some unusual, some actually sort of quite commonly grown in people's gardens at home that are easy to grow. Things like lavenders do really well on the, uh, on the dry garden, they enjoy the hot, sunny, dry conditions. Uh, things like the cotton lavender, very similar, called Santalina. Again, that does well during the summer months. And slightly more unusual shrubs, things like Leptospermum, uh, not so commonly grown in this country, but does well on the uh, dry garden, does need a little bit of shelter, doesn't like a very cold winter. And even one or two things like the mimosas, the acacias, got a variety called Provisima that's just about to come into flower through uh, March and April, absolutely smothered in small, uh, spidery-like, little fluffy yellow flowers. And the leptospermas people would know as the, the tea tree, wouldn't they? With, with little little tiny clusters of flowers covering the whole plant. Beautiful in bud too. The leptospermas, the tea trees, do yeah, fantastically well on the uh, dry garden. Little clusters of flowers during the summer months. There are a couple of different species. Grandiflorum has done very well on the, uh, on the dry garden over the last couple of years. Survived temperatures here to about sort of minus six, minus seven. Uh, it's a relatively sort of warm part of the garden. doesn't get the cold east wind. The frost tends to clear quite quickly. Uh, so you can get away with sort of relatively tender plants if you put them in the right spot. And what about some of the easy herbaceous plants? There's a huge variety of herbaceous perennials on the dry garden. Some a little bit tricky to grow, some quite easy to grow. Uh, things like agapanthus is a good sort of garden plant that does well on the uh, dry garden. Uh, there's a variety called Windlebrook, has a fantastic dark uh, blue flower that comes out in August time, really catches the eye really as we get into the sort of the heat of the summer. But then earlier in the season, the salvias do very well. Uh, things like salvia maynard, uh, the purple flowered salvia, uh, just reaching about sort of two and a half feet tall, a nice clump forming perennial, giving you that early sort of summer season interest. And then a little bit earlier still, things like the catmints and the peters do well on the dry garden. An easy plant to grow, looks after itself, does well at the front of the border, filling in a gap around some of your more structural sort of plants. The wonderful thing about this garden is that the plants here don't need any water. So it's excellent if you're really busy or the kind of person who forgets to water their plants. They don't need water once they're established, so they are really that easy to grow.
Matthew Biggs with garden manager Ian Bull on a blustery day in the dry garden at RHS Hyde Hall in Essex. You can see photos of the dry garden at its best on the RHS website. Here you can also use the online plant finder to find out more about plants suitable for dry gardening. If you're taking a break from working in the garden or fancy some activities further afield, why not drop by the Spring Plant Fair 20th to 21st of April at RHS Hyde Hall, organised by Plant Heritage. This event is the perfect opportunity to buy rare and unusual plants brought to you by some of the region's specialist nurseries. Come and hear a compelling talk on the 21st of April about the productive greenhouse at RHS Garden Wisley in the Claw Learning Centre. Get a sneak preview behind the scenes of Rosemore's Nursery on the 26th of April. You'll get the opportunity to see the growing facilities at the height of the seed sowing season and get tips on how to grow and care for your plants in your garden. Details of all these events, as always, are on the website at rhs.org.uk. So that's it for this edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast. Next time, more on how you and your family can get involved in growing your own fruit and vegetables and the RHS advice team tackle your seasonal gardening problems. Until then, from me, Jan Lambourne, and the team here at RHS Garden Hyde Hall, goodbye. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.